Well, this morning I have a set assignment. This is the last in the marriage seminar weekend, so I was assigned the subject, the covenant of marriage. And uh, as I was praying over it, I thought, well, I, I've got to find something new to say about this. I think everybody's maxed out. <coughs> if you were at the seminar, and if you weren't, um, you don't want to know. <laughs> And I've been praying, really seeking God about this, and uh, I had something began to form in me yesterday, and then it might have been the way that Donnie danced that did it, something, <laughs> <coughs> something happened last night, and I began to uh, hear God begin to speak to me. And then I got up early this morning, and uh, he really began to speak to me. And he gave me such a burden, my heart is absolutely breaking. Um, and it's for this city. Now, it's, so, it's such a vast thing that he's opening up that I'm, all I can do this morning is to scratch the surface. But I believe, I believe with all my heart he's giving a commission to this church. I'm not saying it's only you, but I feel he's giving it to you as part of his passion for this city. And you'll hear, understand what I'm saying as I go along. But I want us to turn, if we may, to Ephesians in chapter 5 and to the well-known section there which deals with the basis of marriage, which of course is where you expected me to go. Or maybe you didn't, but that's where most people would. And from verse 21 through 33, we have this, the great mystery of marriage. And we're told in verse 33, um, verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So what we've got to understand is that God has instituted marriage to speak something. Marriage is not the end in itself, it's a shadow of a much greater reality. The reality is the relationship that Jesus has with the church. He's the husband and the church is the bride. And then, then we're told that we are to use that as our model. So all that husbands have to do, it's very simple, Brothers, is you've just got to live like Jesus and you'll do fine. <clears throat> just treat your wife in every way, the way that Jesus treats the church, which means laying your life down for her. Amen? Yes. And there are three other words that I'll just mention. The word is nourish, which means that you feed them. The other word is, is cherish, which, which gives that sense of, of preciousness and worth and value, and it, it also includes the idea of protection. Now, all, all these are qualities which Jesus powerfully has concerning the church, and, and by the grace of his Spirit, he can give that ability to us. Now, this is a totally supernatural thing. Marriage doesn't work without Jesus. Period. Amen? It's a total impossibility. So when Jesus taught on marriage, the disciples said, well, it's better not to be married. And that's probably a good decision if you're trying to live marriage without Jesus. It's probably better not to be married because you'll make a mess of it and you'll end up as two ruined people. Which, of course, our, our society is full of people and many have given up on this whole crazy idea of marriage because they've never plugged into what the real key and power is that makes this so wonderful. But when you plug into the real source of marriage, which is the Lord Jesus himself, 
then there's a supernatural power that flows into you and a grace that flows upon you as a couple. That you can then begin to live the very model of the reality that he represents with his church. Now the church, all that the women have to do is just to be like the church and just do as you're told. It's ever so simple. <laughs> no, it's not like that at all. Because I'll just mention this and I'm going to move on. Because I feel this is a very important verse. That there's a clear teaching in Scripture that, that, that there is headship in the family, that the husband has that responsibility of headship and it's not controlling chauvinistic headship, it's Christ-like serving headship. That's the difference. But nevertheless, that headship needs to be there. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, we get three headships for comparison to give us the idea of how it works. We're told that, that God is the head of Christ. That's the first one. In other words, we go to look at the Trinity and see in the Trinity that we have Father, Son and Holy Spirit and that the Father is designated as the head of that perfect Trinity. Now all of them are equally God, all of them are equally glorious, but the Spirit and the Son joyfully submit to the headship of the Father. Now that's the picture. It's not inequality, it's not inferiority, it's glorious divinity in all three of them, but for the sake of order and government, the Father takes the headship. Now that's the pattern. In exactly the same way, we're told, in exactly the same way, the man is to be the head of the woman, in exactly the same way. And then it, we're also told, if you can receive this, that in exactly the same way, Christ is the head of mankind, of man. Now what does that mean? It means that by his resurrection, he's made you equal with him. Is that incredible? Okay. Well, that's put me right off. Okay. So I want us to go to Ephesians. And I want us to, what I want us to see, this is my first point really, is that when you look at this, this section on marriage, that, that it, it doesn't start there, it builds up from there. In fact, you've really got to start somewhere round about verse 6. In fact, you've got to start at the beginning of the Ephesian letter. But let's come to verse 6. And it says, Ephesians chapter 5, and it starts to talk about the wrath of God coming upon the sons of disobedience. Then verse 7, Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. But the fruit of light is all goodness, righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is a shame even to speak of these things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, awake you, you sleeper, awake you who sleep, arise, and Christ will give you light. See that you walk circumspectly, wisely, carefully, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Now this is a setting which I believe we're absolutely in and I think it was um, Ken that touched on this, that, that, that we're moving into very, very precarious times. Yes. 
If you travel the world as I do and, 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 and in constant touch with what's going on around the world, you realise that we're heading for a showdown which may or may not be the great final showdown. It's hard to say, but it's certainly of immense proportions. And, and, and everything's shaking and, and we're running into difficult times, but you can sense in this nation the tremendous battle about anything that's godly, that's Christian. Is being, I mean, the last election did not settle things, it sort of aggravated the fight. Yeah. The fury of the enemy is even greater now than it was before. To think there are enough stupid Americans that want morality rather than economy, to them is hopping mad. The whole world's angry with us. If you go to Europe right now, they're furious with these stupid Americans that will vote a, a religious man like Bush into power. They can't understand the mentality. And the fury of the demons of Islam and the way that they're wriggling their tentacles into every facet of society. I'm not, you know, I don't hate Muslims, but I hate that spirit that's, yeah. that's at work to destroy the kingdom, if it could, and to pull down the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and, and we're in the middle of a battle. Yes. Now, as a result, we've got to get ourselves properly equipped for that battle. Now, this is the context of the passage which then deals with the husband-wife relationship and how it's got to be modelled on Christ and his church because we've got to get ourselves so solid and secure in our family units that they become impregnable to every attack yes. of the devil. Yes. And if we don't do that, then those that don't do that will become victims. They will not be winners in this battle. Now that's, as I, as God being, I, I, felt, I felt the seriousness of this. It's not just so we can have a nice marriage in a nice society. This literally is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of, of, of victory or defeat, of, of triumph or destruction. We can't mess around in the edges right. of these things. Okay, let me just move on. Okay, we must redeem the time. We, we must walk wisely, not as fools. Verse 15, we must redeem the, the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Then we move into verse 18. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing a mating melody in your heart unto the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the, if you like, the preparation is to live life in the glowing presence and fullness of the Spirit. Now this is all preparation leading up to how on earth is a husband and a wife going to be able to live together properly in these difficult days? The answer is, you've got to do all these preparatory steps. Clear all the, all the junk out of your life, get rid of all that's unclean and worldly, have a, and, and, and now start to live in God's presence, rejoicing in him, and go on continually being filled. And as you live, and, and as, as Billy said, not just in the meetings, but even more in your own home, and so far as you can do it, even when you're driving the car, but just be careful, you know. <laughs> Don't get so taken up that you go off the road in your excitement. I always find when I pray in tongues, I somehow go faster. It's sort of <laughs> I have to sort of have a very rigid speed control on it once I start praying in tongues and once I start worshipping, because something sort of happens to me. I become like Eileen. <laughs> 
Amen? And so, now, now here's the next thing. So, this whole life of praising and worshipping leads to a life of thanks. Then verse 21, it leads to a life of submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. That, that relationship brings to you a submitted humility where you're not all the time contending with people, but you're willing to give way, you're willing to submit. It just becomes a lifestyle. Yeah. If that's not already your lifestyle, you can't suddenly become that when you get into marriage. Hello, listen that's to me. Right. If you're not already submitted, in, you, you will not suddenly become submitted because you marry someone. And that's where many people have the problem. So notice the generalities which then focus on the particular. Amen? Yeah. So we need to ask ourselves the question, am I the, have I got to this place where I have an attitude of submission in all things, and then of course that same quality can work and make my marriage a success, otherwise it would, it would be constant fighting because I'm standing up for my rights. Right. Okay? Then we move on into the passage which I just briefly mentioned, but I want us now to continue out the other end into chapter 6, because it doesn't stop there. The moment it's dealt with the husband-wife relationship, which I'm spending the least time on because it's been so thoroughly taught already, but it then runs on into Ephesians 6, into, okay, now, when you've got it right as, as, as a couple, then children, you've got to find your right role in this thing which God is doing. You must obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. You are to honour your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now there's something about our society which God began to show me, which I, I was well aware of, but it came home so strongly that all these beautiful things have been lost. Mm -hmm. I and Eileen, we lived for many years in India, and India has got some tremendous things to teach us in these areas. If you go, for example, in, in, in India and lecture, I, I lectured in Bombay University for a number of years, and the honour that I was given by the students, they, they, they thought it was an amazing privilege if I would stay for half an hour overtime and teach them things free of charge. They thought this was the most fantastic thing. Wow. Imagine that happening in American University. <laughs> When I stood up to, to lecture, everybody stood up in respect and for them to, to think that I was willing to come and, and give them my years and years of knowledge, to them it was the most amazing thing which was gratefully and, and carefully received. It's a totally different environment. The way that you're honoured, I remember in, in Johannesburg, just a few a uh, year or two back, I, I was a bit early for checking in at, at, a, at a counter and there was a few seats there and there was a, a, a lovely uh, black African gentleman sitting there and as I walked towards these seats, he stood up and stood back in respect and I thought, oh, this is racial. He said, I, said, I said, I hope you didn't do that because I was white. He said, oh, no, sir. He said, I did this because of your grey hairs. How could I remain seated when a man of age comes to sit beside me? So it's a great honour to have you sit next to me. Now that's right through the culture, it's not just an act. And we've lost some terrible things, biblical things. Yeah. This is not just African or Indian culture, actually this is the foundation of our biblical society and we've got to get these things back. And I'm not saying that because I'm an old guy, I'm telling you because it's biblical. <laughs> yeah. And I just began, as I began to go through these things, I just began to weep really weep and cry out for this nation and for what it's lost. 
Now let me just move on, on to the next few things. And so the whole issue of children, and then you go on in verse 5, the whole work ethic of good old-fashioned service, and it's all there, and this is all a, a flow of these things. Now, when you get all these things in place, we become an invincible society. And, and the, the, the key, the linchpin to all this is having the right kind of families and the key to that is for husbands and wives to learn from God again how to be the, the, the father and mother and the parents that they should be of a God-ordained household. Yes. So I want us to, this morning to go way beyond just making it as a husband and wife together so we live together without divorcing. Now that's a wonderful improvement to where many people are. But that's not where God wants to stop. He just showed me this morning, he wants the total restoration of all these things. I've got a vast amount of ground to cover, so I just want to move on. Let me just pick on one or two more things. Now, the purpose of marriage, and then, then I should finally say that when all these things are set properly in place, we go into Ephesians chapter 6, where we're now ready and equipped for war, which is going to be powerful and effective. And we have the ability then to wrestle with principalities and powers and to pull them down and to transform our society. So that's where God's going. Now I've said that so quickly, has that made sense to you so far? So see this in the context of something much, much bigger, but it's a vital ingredient to being a victorious people that really do pull down the demonic powers that are destroying our nation and bring the kingdom of God in its place. Yes. Now that's where we're going, because that's where God's going. So just having a slightly better marriage, or even a much better marriage, isn't an end in itself. So this marriage seminar was not for us to get on better together, it's to get on better together for a purpose, that's to transform our nation. Yeah. Amen? Alright, let me move on then. The purpose of marriage was to provide a new home having left the old home. The thing that hit me with great force this morning was that in the Bible there is no such thing as singleness. You lived in your parents' home until the day you married someone and then you went and established a new home. You forsake your father and mother, you leave that home in order to now lay the foundation for a new home. And the concept of singleness just isn't in the Bible anywhere. And it hit me with great shock as I realised that the whole of our society is pretty well founded on singleness. If you walk, if you drive around San Antonio, all the vast new apartment blocks are for single accommodation. Now that's totally foreign. I was thinking about India again. And India, maybe one or two of the more modern cities, is just beginning to suffer from this malaise. But in India, you don't have single people. You live at home and then you get married. And usually it's the family that arranges the marriage for you. And so you, there's, there's no such thing as unmarried people. Well, I, don't, I mean wandering around, lost and unmarried. I mean, they, they, when they, it's, it's the family responsibility yeah. to get them a good husband or get them a good wife. Now that's also biblical, by the yeah. way. In the Jewish culture, it was, it was customary for a girl to be married somewhere between 16 and 20 and if they hadn't found the right partner and got her married, the father had failed to do his job properly. In Greek culture it was slightly older, somewhere between 20 and 35 and if the family had not done their duty to find the right marriage partner, they were failing their children. 
It was a family affair. It wasn't, that's your problem because you can't find someone to marry. No, this was a family affair. And it's the same in India. I mean, when, when I was pastoring the Baptist church in Bombay, we shared a large um, apartment with another family, a beautiful family from Kerala called the Phillips family. The father, who was a high executive in the Bank of India, died of, of cancer and I was the uncle to that family. Now, uncle in India is much more than uncle in, in America. You, you, you are there as part of the family. So when that man died, he had, they had four children. I became the, the, the um, what's the word? Uh, the surrogate father, I guess, of that family. And so I worked with this wonderful lady, Mrs. Phillips, uh, the widow, and I worked with her to find husbands and wives for all the four children, because that was my responsibility as, a, as an Indian pro, you know, uh, surrogate father. I had to find their, their, their marriage partners. And it was a great privilege that they conferred this um, responsibility on me. So, and, and we worked together and got them all, and we prayed and we sought the face of God. You know, it's amazing how many, these marriages are incredibly successful. Because it's a real prayer matter, but it's a family responsibility. We've got so-and-so's not married. Let's pray, seek the face of God. Let's inquire. Let's look to find the right partner for them. And it suddenly dawned on me, why? When you look at all these apartment blocks of apartment blocks of all these single people living these lonely, isolated lives, I, I realised we've got you know, something more than just being a happy couple. We're married. Blow the rest of the world. We can't live that way. And I began to see a commission that God's beginning to put upon this church, which I will develop as we go along. The purpose of marriage was to provide a new home, having left the old one. Now, now in the Bible, family is fatherhood. In the Greek language, there is no word for family. That's interesting. There's a word, patria, which is the word fatherhood. In other words, there was no concept of a family without a father because the father was the fatherhood of the family. Hello, hear what I'm saying? So a family was the sphere of a man's fatherhood and he accepted the responsibility of fatherhood for all those that were under that fatherhood. And in the Greek terms, it could be and would be first the natural children, but it would be all the other people that made up that family unit. It's also interesting that the word husband, which is a translation of the Hebrew word and the old Anglo-Saxon word, husband, is a very accurate translation of that Hebrew word. And it, it lit literally meant, was housebound. It was someone who was bound to a house. Someone who, who once, once you became a husband, you accepted the fact that you'd come to leave your parents' home, but not to float around in individualism, but to become the foundational responsibility of laying a new house. And you were the, the one that laid the foundation and that you provided the, the binding force that held that new house together and provided for all those that were in that house. So if you take on the term husband, you're taking, really, biblically, you're taking on all those responsibilities. Can you hear what I'm saying? I could spend hours on each one of these points, but just hope they're going home to you. So there's no separate word for, for, for fatherhood, and that's what the, the word husband means. The one who founds and then binds the house together. That's what a husband is. 
he founds a house, or he's the foundation of a house, and then by his love and by his responsibility, by him going out and earning money and providing, he then prov provides the, you know, the, the protection and he provides the, the security for that whole household. That's why Paul said, if a man does not provide for his own house, what is he? He's denied the faith, he's worse than an infidel. So lazy, layabout married men are unacceptable scripturally. Right. Go out and get a job and earn and make sure you provide properly before you start spending all your time. Oh, the Lord's called me. Well, if he's called you, do your first responsibilities first. Come on. Good. Amen. Good. If you have to go full-time, go full-time because you have to. Because the call of God upon your life is so big that you haven't got time to work. But as long as you can work, work. Yes. Serve the church in all your spare time. Serve the church in all the ways you can. But keep working until you have to go. There should be a, there should be a tremendous work ethic in every Christian. Yes. Amen. We're not here to sponge off the church. Amen. We're here to serve the church and to enrich the church's resources in order to powerfully advance the kingdom. Amen? Okay, let me move on. Next thing. When this phrase, which, which is quoted again and again, it comes from Galatians 2.24, is that, that when they leave father and mother, and it's a, it's a word of entire total separation, but not to go into splendid isolationism, it's to start a new home, to start a new family. And then it says they shall cleave to one another, and these two shall become one flesh. And, and, and the words that are used there in, in the Greek and the Hebrew are so strong that you can only represent it by taking two planks of wood, putting a powerful glue on them, sticking the two together so that the glue joint is so strong that the wood will break before the glue joint breaks. Have you got the picture? That's how strong these words are. Almost when you become joined to a man or joined to a woman, you are cemented together by God in the act of marriage and by sealing it with the covenant of intercourse. That's a very powerful part of this. Yes. And now it's impossible to separate that joining without a whole lot of splintering damage. You cannot ever be pulled apart again successfully. If you're pulled apart again, then it will be to rip the thing to pieces and there'll be nothing left of any real value. What there was was destroyed by the separation. Does that make sense yes. to you? Yes. Now the purpose of that is then in that context of becoming one flesh where, where the two yous flow together into a new us. And you're no longer either one or the other, you're both. And in the mystery of that union, then you have children, and the children actually become the flow of the two yous. And the children carry the actual manifestation of this new entity which yeah. the two of you have become. If you look at the children of, 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 of parents, you can see that both parents are in the kids. Amen? Right. You hear what I'm saying? I wrote it down quite well this morning. Perhaps I'd better read it. Let me read it. Godly offspring are the fruit of this corporate new us. Let me go back at one line. That they become one flesh stuck together to form a new corporate entity. Godly offspring are the fruit of this corporate new us. The children carry the new corporate identity and are a blend of both parents. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. 
It's impossible to successfully tear this apart by separation or by divorce. It only leaves behind a splintered ruin. Amen? All right, let me move on. Biblically, they always went from father and mother to marriage. They went straight from their parents' home to their own home. There was no single state. In Jewish and Greek culture, everybody stayed at home and then got married. And it was the father's responsibility to make sure that the right marriage partner was found for them. Now, you may think that's a bit shocking, but I tell you, I've watched the two systems, and I tell you, I know which one works better. If you've got godly praying parents who, who are seeking the right partner for their kids, then I've, I've very rarely seen it misfire. But when people go out and find whatever they think without even caring to look into what it, what's the implications are, there's many, many yeah. terrible messes that result. Yeah. My children, which were brought up in India, they, both, they all said to us, we wouldn't dream of marrying someone that you didn't thoroughly approve of and hadn't looked into. We wouldn't trust ourselves. We trust God in you to help us to make the right decision. Yeah. Our children all married as virgins to godly partners and they're on fire serving Jesus. They're now producing godly grandchildren with the same passion. So I'm telling you, this works. Yes. Amen? Yes. So let's begin to perhaps begin to rethink biblical culture instead of kingdom, instead of the worldly culture in which we live. It's got to affect all that we do in the way we live. The pain and curse of singleness is a relatively new curse upon our society. And it's mainly come through the failure of fatherhood and marriage. That's true. It's in the end of Malachi. It says his purpose in sending the spirit of Elijah is to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the hearts of the children back to their parents. Why? So that God can remove the curse. Yeah. And as I began to hear God speaking to me in the early hours of this morning, and began to sort of, you know, in spirit, I was going around all these masses and masses of apartment blocks and all these thousands and thousands and thousands of dwelling places where everybody lives as individuals, and I began to cry. And I realised it was breaking God's heart. And I realised that the devil could come in and ravage them in all kinds of ways with drugs and with sex because they're lonely and they're looking for, for something. And they're here, have a bit of this, have a bit of that. And what they really need is the foundations that God intended for us to live. I'm always crying as I'm trying to talk to you. I can feel how God feels about these things. Now, I've just, just, then I made a list of the reasons for singleness. I'm just going to read them. I could spend an hour on each one. Number one, dysfunctional families. Families falling apart, causing many to leave home. And many, I've heard men say, well, when my kid gets to 18, I'm not having them around in my house anymore, spoiling my freedom. I've heard that said by American parents. Wow. Yeah. I want them out of the house so I can have my freedom back in. I mean, I've got to put up with these kids until they're 18. But the moment they're 18, out you go. Now, that's a horrible sin and a horrible spirit that's working in our families. On the other hand, sometimes home, uh, life at home is so miserable, the kids can't wait to get out because it's such a lousy place to live. So they're driven out by the, the, the dysfunctional failure of the family unit. Number two, which is, I've really covered really, is selfishness on the part of the parents or the children. I want my own life, I want to do what I want to do, and as a result, they will break out to become single or they will be kicked out so as not to spoil the parents' freedom. Number three, 
rebellion and independence, not submission. I won't say any more, I just, just leave that with you, but they're, they're all entwined together. And then number four, the reason is, is the wreckage of broken marriages. I mean, one of the things that breaks my heart, I do a lot of flying on planes, and again and again I'll get on a plane and there's one or two children who are They're being sent for the weekend to one half of a splintered marriage. Now, I these, I these broken kids sometimes sit, because they often stick them in first class, where I often get upgraded because it's easier to keep an eye on them. And you get these little kids. What sort of mess are they going to be? What's going to happen to them? The people have evidently got money, otherwise they couldn't pay for them to be flown one way or the other for the weekend. And this poor kid's torn apart because this kid is the, is the product of those two entities which should never, ever, ever have been separated. Part of him belongs to the mother, part of him belongs to the father. That's the way God designed it. They were never, ever supposed to be pulled apart. And they grew up to teenage and then, and so on and so forth. So the wreckage of broken marriages. Number five, the industrial revolution which changed the labour patterns and it led to migration of labour. And there were many absolutely heartless, unscrupulous companies which will post their people around and tear the family in half and they don't even care. And because the job's a good job, people put up with this. It wasn't like that 50 years ago. It's a new phenomenon. And it leaves men living in one town, a wife or and the kids in another town, and then what kind of temptations are they now being exposed to? It's all over our nation. Then close to that is the military. Two major world wars have devastated family life. And in both those two major world wars, there was general drafting. All men were sent off to the war, and in the Second World War, even some of the women were. And with the continuing unrest, there's been several uh, minor drafts. The Vietnam War is a good example of this. With the result that military postings tear families apart. I mean, I meet people on planes that they've got a, a, a woman who's got a 14-month-old a kid and she's been posted by some idiotic military command to, to uh, Germany. And I think, what kind of insanity is this? What's going to happen to that family? What's she doing in the military under those sort of conditions? What's the military doing to think in this idiocy that men and women are all the same and that we treat right. them like, you know, as if we were moving guns or, 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 or ammunition around the place? Mm. Military postings have torn families apart and moved people around to live, and they live as, as crowds in singles, and the temptations are absolutely phenomenal. Mm. I, I mean, I, I lived in the Second World War. I was just too young to uh, be in active service, but 
a lot of people that I knew, they went off to the war. In fact, many people that I knew, and many, many, many of those, the marriages never survived. It just destroyed everything. Amen? Number seven, higher education. The new fashion to go away to university for several years. How many kids have been destroyed by that? Because they weren't properly equipped for it. All these things, and I could go on, have produced what I've called millions of biblical orphans. Biblically, they're orphans. They haven't got a real relationship with a father and mother. They haven't got a real family home that's theirs. They're just floating around as spare parts, biblical orphans. And Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, he said, I won't leave you orphans, I will come to you. The answer is there in Jesus Christ, but we've got to get people connected to that answer. And this city is full of people who are, who are biblically orphans. And the danger is that you rush into some relationship with the opposite sex to try and fill that great void, which is the void of having lived and grown up in a totally unsatisfactory family. You're crying out for love, you're trying out for endorsement, and you can fall into a trap so easily, and then go from one mess to an even greater mess. Amen? All these things have produced millions of biblical orphans. And as we prepare for these present perilous times, we've got to make these things secure. Right, let me move on to my, yeah, it's my, no, not my last page. Psalm 68, come there, was written for a time of war. Just move to that. I could spend the whole session on this, but you, you look at this in the context of it. Psalm 68. Let God arise, verse 1. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him Flee before him, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away, as wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of the Lord. Amen. We're crying out for these things, but that means war, beloved. Right. Verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides back. In other words, we're back again to the worship of Ephesians 4.18. Right, now come to verse 5. A father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God sets the solitary in families. He brings out those who are bound into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a dry land. Otherwise, when God's getting ready for war, he wants to make sure the people are secure in their families. You read that whole psalm. It's an incredible psalm that had me in tears this morning. I want you to see what God is saying and what he's doing. So he says, I'm going to go to war. I'm going to rip the devil apart. I'm going to come in mighty power against those demonic principalities. But just like the whole process of Ephesians 6, just like Psalm 68, I want to get my people ready against yes. that day. And one of their greatest securities is to be properly founded in secure, solid family relations. Otherwise, they're going to be blown apart by this thing. I'm just going to touch on this, uh, and, and I've just raised this question, which is raised in, in fully in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Is the single state ever God's will, or is it a superior, and is it a superior state? It would, it needs, I need a whole session or two to teach this properly, but it needs to be understood properly. 
This was a time, again, of looming danger and persecution. This was about, Nero's persecution was about to break out upon the church. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he deals in so many issues of the family in that letter. And now he comes to this matter of, of virginity. Now, the word, like many words in the Greek, when it's used in the male form, it's usually used in the sense of being inclusive of all humanity. Like the word huios is a male form, but it isn't male, it's for all of us, male and female, who become sons. It's sort of like representative man rather than actual man. Does that make sense to you? And the word for a virgin is the word parthenos. Now that's the male form. Although it's used for Mary, when she said she was a virgin, when the angel came to her, it's used for women, and, but it's not speaking so much of her gender as so much as her marital state. It can apply to men, it can apply to women, and it's speaking not of morality, but of marital state. Does that make sense to you? In other words, I mean, classically, in biblical terms, a virgin is someone, male or female, who's not married. Now, because of the culture of that day, that would automatically assume that they were morally pure as well, because you didn't go in for that sort of stuff in those days. If you did, you were such an outcast, you wouldn't survive, you would be put to death. Okay? So when you read the word virgin in the English Bible, don't, don't get the wrong idea. It's male or female, and it's talking about the marital state rather than the moral state, although the moral state is included in the marital term. Does that make sense to you? All right, now that's the picture we have here. And I'm just going to make a quick few statements here. It describes a marital state, not a moral state, that is that they are un unmarried. Verse 25 onwards, the word virgin can mean one of three things. It mean, can mean a betrothed or unmarried potential bride of the person, a fiancé, like, like Mary was betrothed to Joseph maybe for years before it came to the intended wedding day. Because in the responsibilities of the families in those days, you would look for a suitable young man in a, a, a family union and say, why doesn't your son marry our daughter? Say, yeah, agreed. Now that was an agreed betrothal, but they might decide that when they were just eight to ten years of age, but they would wait for the right age to come. Now this sort of thing also happens in India. And so for years you could be betrothed to someone because the two families have agreed and, and later on the young people normally would consent that that's what they want to happen. So that's one possible way of reading this. It's someone who's got someone betrothed to them, but they obviously are not yet married. The second use of this word is to talk about one's own virginity. As a single man, if I was living in moral purity and had no relationship with a, with a woman, I, w I would be a virgin. I would be a parthenos, and I would talk about my, my parthenosness. So it could be saying, right, oh, the person who's being talked to, uh, you, you may keep your virginity because it's not the time to get married. Because, I mean, you think about someone in, in, in Iraq at the moment. Is it a good time to get married? Wow. He comes home on a three-month leave and you, you, you love him and he loves you, but he's going back into the battlefield, supposing he gets killed. Is that a good time to get married? Say, no, let's wait until yeah. this is over. Now, that's a wise decision because of the circumstances. It's not teaching a general principle. Mm -hmm. 
Because Paul teaches that because of the evilness of the days, we need to think twice about taking on the responsibility of becoming the father of a family. Because you don't think of marriage in any other terms. Is this the time to become a father of a family? To set up home, start having kids, when any moment a bomb could fall on us and blow us apart, or, or I could go off to war and not come back, is not a wise time. So let's just hold it for the time. Now that's the phraseology that's being used here. And the third way you can use this is, is that the, it's the father of someone, male or female, who is of marriageable age, but you've not yet sealed in an act of marriage. So there, it could be your virgin, meaning your son or your daughter, that you betrothed to someone else, but you've not actually gone and conducted the wedding ceremony. Does that make sense to you? So there is a place, occasionally, but it's not a normal state. The state of the Bible is for everybody to get married. Okay? But it, Jesus does speak in Matthew 19. He speaks about, I think it's verse 26, about some are made eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. But it's a very rare calling. And it needs very special grace upon it. And it's not the way that anyone should normally think or believe God wants them to behave. I believe that's a totally thorough biblical position. In other words, if you're a normal, healthy, vital young person, then the way for you is to get married to someone like you in the Lord and to raise up the most fantastic powerhouse for God in your home yeah. that you can ever imagine. And I believe that's God's will. Yeah. I felt a call from God this morning that I've got to take responsibility as a father in the spirit to make sure all my kids find the right... You know, wow. I've, I've done it in the natural, I'm going to start doing it in the spiritual. Wow. I'm going to find these partners if I have to cross the world to find them. Wow. Does that make sense to you? And I feel as a church, we say, well, that's their problem. No, it isn't. It's our, we're the family. Yes. We're not going to sit here and leave them unmarried to the right person and say, well, that's, well, we're enjoying our marriage, but hard luck for them. This is not a right attitude, beloved. When we were in Bombay, we had 40% unemployment. And we never had anybody unemployed in the church because we knew how to get jobs. We never ha had anybody unmarried in our church because we knew how to get marriage partners. Why on earth don't we do the same thing in America? Yes. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes. Does it only work in that culture? No. It's a matter of recognizing biblical culture and living by it. Yes. And we'll see it happen here. Let me come now. Amen? Okay. Let me go on to the last bit. There's another category I was just going to mention very briefly, and that's the, the category or the state, what I'm going to call biblical widows. Again, in the Bible, the word widow literally is for male or female. It isn't really a man. It's a widow or widower. And it's one of these masculine words that includes all mankind. And what the word literally means is bereft of a spouse without a partner for any reason. It could be by death, it could be some other tragedy, but the fact is that you no longer have a partner and you once had one. And God wants to fix that one too. It could be, and I'm just going to mention things, it could be the devastating failed marriages which has produced many biblical widows and some biblical widowers. And some of us, you know, some of them are probably sitting here this morning. It was, it was the, the, the devastation of a marriage relationship that just left you bereft of a partner. It wasn't by death, it was by other reasons. The second 
is, is, is of a singles of marriageable age without a functioning family, longing to be married but unable to meet the right person. Now that's another biblical widow. And I want to say we're not going to have any, we're not going to have that in our churches anymore. We're going to do something about this. Male or female, okay? Then the final thing, the true widows or widowers who need probably a family more or as much as they need a partner. Oh, well, that's hard luck. They lost a husband. No, this is family. This is our responsibility. You see, in India, you don't get old people's homes. There's no such thing. You don't get, and I mean, I'm talking about the normal Indian culture. You don't get old folk being put out into some, it's family. If you move in your, in your job from one, one city to another, if you've got a cousin brother, then you'll go and stay with him. You won't, you won't go get yourself an apartment because it's family. I thought, God, could that happen here? Why not? What a thing it would be. Now let's just t- turn to John chapter 4 and I want to finish. I could spend another hour on this, but I'm going to do it in five minutes. John chapter 4. Time me. And here we meet a woman. She's a woman that's had five husbands and the man she's living with is not her husband. She's an absolute emotional, devastated wreck. Now why has she had five failed marriages? Well, because partly because of the culture, because in the culture of, of that time, a man could just say, I'm finished with you, here, go. And that was it. She, she would be cast. I don't know what's happening five times. Now she's living with a man, they're not even bothered to pretend to be married because there's no point, she just hasn't got the heart to go through this, this empty ceremony yet once again. But I believe in that woman, you see, there was, there was a, a God-sized hole and she was looking for a man to fulfill the hole that only God could fill. And that's why many marriages get under stress because they're looking in their partner for what only God can give them. Because God's created each one of us with a, it could be you sitting here this morning, God's created each one of us a God-sized hole and there's no relationship with any human being that can fill that hole because it's a God-sized hole. If you try and get a God-sized love out of any man or any woman, they can't give it to you and you'll end up wrecking the marriage. But if you get totally filled up with God and so your cry for worth and value and fatherhood and all these other things is satisfied in Him, then in a relaxed way you can make a meaningful relationship with someone else and it'll work yes. because the demand and the pressure is not the same. Right. Do you hear what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, that's right. That was the problem here. Jesus saw the need, he didn't go and find her a husband because her void needed to be filled with God before she was capable of having a successful marriage. She says, woman, I can give you water which if you drink of this you'll never thirst again. She said, oh Lord, give me this water. She was totally transformed. Then I believe if the man she was living with wanted, she could then have had a successful marriage with him. All that devastation of five horrible, total wrecking failures were wiped away in the power and infilling of God's love. Now just think, if we can start to get to people in this state in our city and they start to receive it, just what thinks what's going to happen to them? Now it was in this context this is what really hit me, and I'm saying this in just two or three words to hope to get some sense to it. 
But in this context, when Jesus had met this vast, great woman's need, then he says this. His disciples go away, they come back and find her talking to this woman. They're a bit shocked to see this. And then this is what he says. He said, he said my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Picking up these women and getting them filled with God so that they can now become whole and have meaningful relationship. He said, this is my father's work. Now listen to the next verse. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already ripe for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For, this is the, for, for in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I've sent you to reap that for which you've not laboured, Others have laboured and you have entered into their labours. In other words, what he's saying, he said, look, look around you. See, this woman is just a specimen of the vast harvest that's waiting to be reaped. And my mind, my spirit, I think, began to go round all these massive, massive apartment blocks all over the city of San Antonio. I thought, man, what a harvest. Supposing River City Fellowship developed a ministry and I think we're going to have to ask God for, for the methodology, for the detail of how to do this. He said, look, we're going, to, we're going to find a way to reap this harvest. And it became a place where hundreds of thousands of, of men and women like this woman had the whole filled with all the fullness of God and then in the wholeness of what they then become, the family then was able to arrange for them to meet their right partners and to establish godly homes and start bringing forth godly offspring. Wouldn't that be a transformation in our city? They have to stop building single apartments, stop building homes because that's what people want now. And that's the burden that I've come with you this morning. You know, okay, this is a marriage seminar, but let's see that even getting a marriage right isn't just for us. Yes. It's to do something much greater. It's to become a, a reaping machine for lost single people who, who maybe they're hanging on the edges of our churches and maybe they're not even connected in any way with Jesus yet. But just imagine that we can reap this harvest and turn it into godly homes, bringing forth wonderful, whole, beautiful children who will then carry the power of God in their lives and then we will become the impregnable fortresses that God wants us to be. So in the days of conflict which lie ahead, you know, we don't have any casualties. In Tulsa right now, the <coughs> divorce rate in Tulsa is the highest in the United States of America. How can that be with all those great big churches? There's something wrong somewhere. Amen? Can you hear what I'm saying? Now, I know it wasn't the most eloquent exposition of the word, but I've just felt I needed to share my heart to you. I've got hours and hours of stuff that I could have carefully taught on, but, but I believe the Spirit of God spoke to me yes. this morning in order to speak to you yes. and that we need to do something about it. 
And I believe there are several things we can do. Number one is if you are in that category of being a spiritual orphan or being a spiritual widow, then I'm telling you that, that we in this house, we will give ourselves as God's agency to bring you into the fullness of, of, of what's the word I want, of satisfaction of being filled with him. And we're not going to, we're going to make a declaration, we're not going to have any more widows and orphans in our church. They're going to be filled with God, they're going to be, they're going to be established in families. He puts the solitary in families. Yes. Only, only the rebellious live in a dry land. Yes. Yes. So God, give us an answer to this, give us practical solutions. Yes. So there's not a person in our present fellowship that feels bereft. And outside and alone, but let, let them feel here's, a, here's, a, here's something better than a natural yes. family, yes. which is totally committed to them yes. and having their legitimate needs met. Amen. Would yes. you agree with me on that? Yes. Yes. And secondly, let, let's agree that that we who are enjoying wonderful marriages and have good homes, that it's not for us to live in an exclusivity. God, give us answers, show us a way to be the reapers and the means of yes. reaching this vast harvest which you've shown us and which I believe you're declaring is part of our responsibility. Yes. Give us, Lord, spirit-inspired methodology. God-equipped people that become laborers in this harvest field. You've said it, it's not four months, it's now. Don't say it's four months, it's now. It's there, it's ripe, it's ready, it's waiting. Lord, give us an understanding of how to reap it in Jesus' mighty name. Show us how to do it. Reverse this terrible trend, Lord, in our society and bring us back to godly families, raising up godly children to raise up godly families. And the, the, the curse of singleness and of orphans and widows are, is now removed from us. Yes. In Jesus' mighty yes. name. Amen.